Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us Waiting for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm Peter Eyes. Thanks for joining us in this episode of the podcast. Today, my guest is a performer widely regarded as the leading lady of musical theatre in Australia. The title is Warranted Absolutely. A look at her CV reveals an extensive list of shows and characters that have engaged and delighted audiences over a three-decade career. She is, of course, Marina Pryor. Sydney audiences most recently caught Marina in the excellent Fun Home a stellar performance that demonstrated once again her immense range. But at the beginning of her career, she burst onto the musical stage as Mabel in the Victorian State Opera's production of The Pirates of Penzance. Marina Pryor has carved a career that resonates with mesmerising performances, vocal brilliance and exciting reinvention. She garnered broad public attention for her spellbinding delivery of Christine Daae in the premiere Australian production of The Phantom of the Opera. It is a role she played for over three years. Her work as a recording artist and on the concert stage has provided her opportunities to work with international stars too, including Richard Harris, Jose Carreras and international vocal group Il Divo. Cats, Les Mis, Anything Goes, West Side Story, The Witches of Eastwick, Harp on the Willow, The Hypocrite, Showboat, Guys and Dolls, Mary Poppins, Hello Dolly and Hay Fever are just a handful of the shows where Marina has left an indelible impression on her audiences. Marina Pryor on the marquee guarantees a star turn and a performance of exquisite perfection. Hello and welcome to Stages. Thank you, Peter. I'm so sorry that we can't do this in person, but I think there's a there's a few things going on in the world which <laughs> will prevent that. Yeah, we can't do anything in person, really. No, not really. Um, oh. How's your day been so far? Uh, walking the dog, doing Pilates, walking around the house. <laughs> Has it become a bit become a bit like Groundhog Day for you? 
Look, it has. I've also got, I've got uh, our youngest is in year 11. So that's been really challenging. He's been, uh, we're in Melbourne. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're Sydney. Yes, I'm Sydney. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So he's been, he's done now uh, something like 200 days of homeschooling over the last 18 months. And that's just been really hard. He hasn't done a full t- term of school yet. And so he spent most of year 11 and now most of, Oh, sorry, most of year 10, most of year 11 now, uh, doing it from home. And it's really hard. It's really hard for him, mm-hmm. I, I think. So I've been kind of just keeping him buoyant and, you know, but there's not there's not a lot we can do. <laughs> you know? No, not really, not really. I'm, uh, my day no. job's a teacher uh, and, of oh, course, okay, yeah. he's about, is it same in Victoria? He's about to start year 12 when uh, they go back. This term, that's right. Term. Well, just about. They've got their exams. Yeah, they've got the year eleven exams. He's doing, and he's doing one year twelve subject uh, this year as well. So he's got that, and then he launches into full year VCE. Yeah. So yeah, but I think I think by like October, October they start doing year twelve. Yeah. yeah the, the kids have demonstrated yeah. such incredible resilience. I mean, it's just oh, uh, yeah. what a, what a thing to go through. Um, yeah, they it, really it, have. Yeah. And uh, look, look, as teachers, I mean, I, I walk into school every day and, I, you know, I do my Zoom lessons from the office and, you know, I have a bit of oh, colour and movement. Yeah. But the poor kids, their whole day is usually their bedroom. Yeah. Well, I look, I've, I've insisted that he doesn't do school from the bedroom. I've said, get up, get downstairs. He does it in the pool room. I'm in the pool room. Everything happens here. <laughs> <laughs> he just sits on the couch in the pool room and you know just sort of gets through but uh, you know it's that it's the it's the sport it's the socialization it's the you know collaborative stuff that he's missing out on and um yeah it's it's hard I really feel for him he's making a really good fist of it but I know he's you know he's struggling like a lot of his friends are really really struggling to keep motivated, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and year 12 students about to finish. I mean, it's such a rite of passage, that end of end of school with the valedictory dinners and speech nights and uh, final socials and all yeah. that sort of thing. They've just been robbed yeah. of that. I know, I know. It's really hard. It's really hard. But, look, you know, I guess it's you just have to look at it as look, hopefully it's building resilience. Hopefully it's you know it's standing them in good stead for sort of perseverance later on down the, in their lives. You know, patience. What can you you know? There's no, there, we really we, there's no use railing against it. I guess, no, no. but it's hard to not feel like you're sort of you're languishing, especially in our industry. You know, yeah, it's yeah. just wow. It's been unbelievably. Yeah. Sort of, challenging well the past uh, 18 months i suppose in, in particular incredibly challenging as you say mm-hmm. performing artists having no real creative outlet how have yeah. you managed have you still had a sing every day and uh... i was i think i was uh last year this year no no i've kind of lo- no i haven't lost the i haven't lost the the desire to do it, but I must admit that no. I think it, the strange thing is in this weird situation, certainly for myself and, and a lot of friends, we say we just feel like our worlds are getting smaller and smaller, you know, and our activity base is getting smaller and smaller. Um, and I was uh, 
earlier this year recording an album with David Hobson, which we're, we're supposed to be sort of three quarters of the way through a big, like a 50-date tour at the moment, which, of course, we haven't started. And we were recording an album to sell at our shows, but um, so that was keeping keeping me singing a bit. But, of course, we've had to stop that because we can't go to the studio. So, yeah, it's a f- funny old time. I'm making candles. I'm making candles. <laughs> I'm making, <candles. laughs> making jewellery. I'm kind of like doing that sort of thing. But, yeah, it's very strange. What about cooking? Are you doing much baking? I, I don't bake so much, right. but I cook a lot. Right. Right. I'm a bloody good cook, even if I say so myself. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm cooking a lot, a lot, and eating a lot and drinking a lot of rosé. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to find those creative outlets. I know I know. Um, a few performers have turned to painting. Uh, you, yeah. You've seen social media, they've um, had an exhibition or they're showing the work that they've yeah, done. Yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I haven't moved on to that yet, but, um, you know, there's always time. But, yes, but it's... <sighs> It's finding it's some way to ex- express yourself. Yeah, it is very much so, very much so. I, I think uh, I, I just tend to be pouring myself into my family. My husband and I have five kids between us, so there's a lot of uh, I'm appreciating actually being present and at home instead of constantly being running off somewhere and, and being uh, absent for periods of time. So I'm actually... I'm trying to really just relish being here for everyone. And that's, you know, that's kind of like my creative outlet (laughs) is my, you know, looking after my family. I'm very lucky that I have this big juggernaut to look after. (laughs) (laughs) You're busy. Well, yeah. you, uh, I, I, I suspect when the marquee lights went out, it's, uh, probably March last year, you were in rehearsal yeah. for nine to five or about to L- take the stage? Literally about to get on the plane uh, two days, two or three days before we went into lockdown um, and then got a phone call saying, so I was packing up and everything ready to go to Sydney and then got a, a phone call saying, don't get on the plane. And... Um, yeah, that was 18 months ago or so, yeah. And who'd have suspected that we'd still be here having a similar conversation? Nobody. It's just extraordinary. I mean, and, you know, and it's I find myself repeating myself to everyone sort of because we all say the same thing. Who would have thought that we would still be dealing with this in this same way, if probably worse this time than last year, you know? So, uh, no, I think none of us would have known, no. We will see nine to five, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I think we're hoping that it's going to come back next year. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, dare I say, the last thing I I think that you may have done, which I saw and I thought was absolutely extraordinary, was uh, Helen Bechtel in Fun Home. I can't believe just how fortunate we were to actually get the full rehearsal process and and season in without a break, without a shutdown. Unbelievable. And it was literally, I I think I left Sydney after three months doing that up there and got back home to Melbourne to a lockdown. And then, of course, Sydney went into lockdown. So I, I count myself as incredibly fortunate to have been able to do that, 
you know, that was an absolute gift of a piece, such a beautiful, heart-breakingly gorgeous um, piece. And one of the things I count myself honestly is one of the, uh, count myself so lucky to have done it. I think it's, you know, one of the most wonderful projects I've been involved with, I think, in 38 years or whatever it is. Now, I'm not just saying it because I'm talking to you now, but you know, days and days and days, that moment I think was one of the most spellburning moments I've ever seen in a musical in Australia. You know, I think it was oh, extraordinary. I think partly wow. because well, I didn't, ex- didn't expect to see you in that role, but you were so magnificent. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I, uh, I, look, I loved it. It's such a beautifully constructed piece and uh, the, ch- the challenge in playing Helen in that show, I think, is that she only gets tiny, tiny little moments, snippets. You you get teased where she's a bit mysterious. You don't really know what's going on with her, what's her story, why is she, why is she so cold? It's so sort of mysterious and then all of a sudden there's this cathartic moment, um, you know, at 10 o'clock type thing. And uh, it's just so, it's so well constructed, like such a... A wonderful piece and you know just the people I was working with were just so fabulous and yeah it's just one of those moments one of those times where you just count your blessings to be in something like that. You were very gracious then in receiving that compliment have you always been good at receiving compliments? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us are we have to really struggle and, no. and, and learn to take compliments yeah. I know it's very true you know I think it's an American skill. A lot of Americans I know, you know, having worked with many sort of coming out here for shows and, th- you know, directors and things, but when when American people receive compliments, they seem to be able to just sort of look the person straight in the face and say, thank you very much, I think I did really well. Yep. Whereas Australians <laughs> kind of, we kick the carpet and we shift in our seat and we kind of try to deflect. It's funny, isn't it? It's like a, it's one of the, It's I think it's one of the Nice things actually about Australians is that perhaps we are we are self-effacing, and that perhaps feeds in you know enables us to give a different quality to our work. Perhaps I think sometimes, uh, sometimes I mean this is just such a generalisation, but you know when you're going to Broadway and seeing Broadway work, which is often magnificent, but there is a sometimes there's such a polish and a veneer and an a sense of stardom or ego that sort of uh, is presented with it um, that it perhaps doesn't get you in the gut as as much as I think Australians have a vulnerability and a rawness and a slight doubt in themselves, which I think feeds into really honest work. Yeah, I I think you've hit the nail on the head. my opinion. I mean, you know, who knows? I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. You are you're celebrating uh, your fourth decade, or approaching your fourth decade oh. as a performer. Does it feel like that? I am. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like yesterday when I was the ingenue and and uh, I, I was so green and new in the industry, and I can remember it as if it was last week. And then other times I'm very fully aware of the decades of experience it sort of fluctuates yeah in some ways it feels like yesterday which is a cliche but it does 
and in other ways sometimes I think wow I I kind of I've been around a hell of a long time I think I know what I'm doing now yes you've been blessed with the continuity of work a longevity what do you put that longevity down to um I think it's being able to evolve so uh, I started out as a young romantic lead and ingenue and a lot of people sort of, uh, which is a strange thing about Australia, but tended to, they put you in your pigeonhole and they tell you that's what you are. And I was determined to break out of that. And I faced quite a bit of resistance when I first started doing more character and comedic roles. And uh, I remember doing... Uh, Guys and Dolls, I've done it twice. I did sort of a big commercial production uh, several years ago, but previously, prior to that, I um, did Guys and Dolls with the production company directed by Roger Hodgman down here, and I was asked to play Miss Ad- um, Sarah Brown, the good girl, and uh, I asked Roger Hodgman if I could audition for Adelaide, and I remember quite a number of people around me saying, what are you doing? That's career suicide. You can't do that. Um, and uh, But I'm a stubborn thing and uh, I was determined to uh, move into more character-based work, comedic work, because I knew that I had it in me and I knew that there was more I had to give than uh, just, you know, playing the young, lovely Girl, And I also was very aware that, you know, the young, lovely girl lasts for about 15 years and then you either stop (laughs) or you morph and evolve. And so, and working in more, lots of uh, more sort of MTC straight plays down here and doing more just straight acting work um, has all been a joy, but also a strategic choice because I want to keep I think you have to reinvent and and evolve as an artist um, otherwise you know you you perish really this mini of a puppet was available the second that he called and all he had to do was yell hey Mabel and this dumb hash slinger crawled For seven lousy years, I watched him swear and shove and shout. With you or without you? Well, it's gonna be without. I gotta give my life some sparkle and fizz. And think a thought that isn't wrapped up in his. The place that I consider paradise is wherever he ain't. Wherever he ain't. No more to wither when he's grouchy and rough No more to listen to him bellow and bluff Tomorrow morning I'll be strutting my stuff Wherever he ain't, wherever he ain't Enough of being bullied and bossed Cut off, we as Zaynan get lost I walk behind him like a now, you're a Libran, and you were born in Port Moresby. I am. Yes. Yes, I was. Uh, my dad was working for the health department over there, and um, back then it was actually a territory of Australia. And um, so, yeah, my brother and I were both 
born there. I was very young when I came to Australia, uh, but I went back. I've been back a, a couple of times. Um, yeah, fascinating place, very broken place, very dangerous place now, sadly. Do you, when you go back, do you, do you sussed out uh, the family home, I guess? And um... Yes. I, I actually went <laughs> to the family home uh, where I was born or where I was brought home from hospital uh, the last time I was there, which is about 10 years ago, and uh, it is now a brothel. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. 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 Uh, your folks, I believe, were were uh, avid members of uh, the local GNS Society. Was that in they PNG were, yeah. or back in Australia? PNG. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yes, they did the Mikado and the gondoliers, and yes, they loved Gilbert and Sullivan. So I was brought up on Gilbert and Sullivan, and uh, they both they both had really quite beautiful voices. Um, the you know very uh, avid singers and my mother when she was a young office girl working in Melbourne belonged to the Flinders Street Railway Choir. <laughs> it was like a choirs were a thing. You know they were a social. I mean I guess they're kind of they're coming back a lot now thanks to Jonathan Welsh largely. Uh, yep. But uh, yeah, so my mum went sang in a lot of choirs and my dad did a lot of amateur theatre as did my mum. Yeah. Yes, a time when every household would have a piano because uh, that was one of the, the great modes of entertainment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we used to sing around the piano, um, you know, on a Sunday afternoon. And I, uh, a lot of my, uh, my background is Scottish and Irish, and so I was brought up singing a lot of Celtic music, um, Irish and Scottish songs, um, which I incorporate in when I... When <laughs> I do concerts, <laughs> um, and when David Hobson and I do concerts together, um, he had a similar type of musical influence at a young age, and and uh, we sing a lot of that sort of music when we when we work when we used to work. <laughs> <laughs> it'll come back. It'll come back. It'll come back. It'll come back. Yeah. Uh, you know, your, your father Graham was a, a merchant seaman. He obviously loved the sea. Um, I'm thinking, is there a connection yeah. there between his love of the sea and Marina? I think there might be, but um, it was actually my mum that that insisted on the name Marina. He uh, And he was quite amenable to it because of the whole sea connection, yes. But um, originally my father had this idea that he was going to call me Kim Elaine, which was a made-up name, which is I am so grateful that I have not had to try to get through uh, the entertainment industry called Kim Elaine Prior because it just doesn't have the same ring to it. That's a lot so of light bulbs too on the marquee. Oh, it's just awful. Kim Elaine, like it sounds awful. It sounds like something out of Kath and Kim. It's just terrible. So <laughs> Where did he get my, that from? Uh, I think my mum put a... He made it up. Oh, on the spot. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, that, there's the, the creative DNA there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm bloody glad that he didn't, stick, <laughs> you know, settle with that. You had a girl's education or in a girl's yeah. school educated. Yeah. Uh, did you enjoy that? 
I love because there's a lot to be said for for girls' education. I'm I'm teaching in a girls' school, and um, yeah. I think it's the the opportunities that it provides to uh, the young women are, are, are terrific. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I went to Corowa uh, Church of England Girls Grammar School uh, in Malvern or Glen Iris in Melbourne, and uh, I had a fabulous time at school, and I was afforded so much opportunity and particularly musically we had a, a wonderful uh music teacher uh called Robin Wright who who uh, was really tough but boy uh grounded us really really well and there was private singing lessons and and piano lessons and various different uh musical instruments uh available to be learnt there and um I, I think you know I always remember uh my headmistress saying, you know, if we were in a co-ed school, then when there was budget to be divided, inevitably the boys' needs would be, you know, there would be new football equipment before there would be something appropriate for uh, the girls. It's just reflective of the way of the world. Mm. Uh, and um, and she was adamant that, that young women got every opportunity to have an excellent education. I have to say it was, the, you know, my school days were joyous and I still, uh, my closest friends are the girls I went to school with. Yes, those bonds that you form at that age uh, often stay with your lifetime. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, wonderful, wonderful education. And I sent my, uh, our two girls went to girls' schools as well which has really uh, stood them in good stead. You're participating in school productions, I imagine. Oh, yeah. were, you, were you joining with boys' schools or was it the, all the girls? Uh, yeah, that was, half the, that was the half the reason I did it. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> meet boys. Uh, yes, yes, we did, uh, we did the Mikado, we did Pippin. Um, yes, yes. And I loved it. We did plays. Um, we did a school version of The Marriage of Figaro. God. But, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, great, great memories for me. And always my life, always, always what I loved. And there was never any question about what I wanted to do. I always, I was always going to do, like, be a singer. Not necessarily, I didn't know what sort of singer, but I knew I was going to be a singer. Were you playing leading roles in those school shows or were you in the chorus? No, I was like uh, I think in Pippin I was I was a girl who sang one line, <laughs> and uh, in the Mikado I had a minor role. I was one of the three little maids from school, um, and then I had the opportunity. We were doing uh, Oklahoma when I was in year twelve, and I was going to play Laurie, and I was such a studious little thing that I thought it was going to interfere with my academic work, and so I just I decided not to do it <laughs> I was very I was very into my studies I was a bit of a nerd very focused very focused I was very focused well it obviously paid off because didn't you get into law I did gosh you've done your research I did get into <laughs> law um and uh in those days you know you got you got simultaneous offers so you'd got you'd got you got sort of maybe three offers to university and my first offer was law. My second offer was music at uh, Melbourne. And I was about to do law because I just thought that's what I should do. That's the sensible thing to do. And my father 
said to me, you know, what do you love more than anything in the world? And I said, well, music, singing, obviously. And he said, then why waste your life being a lawyer? Um, and, you know, he said, pursue what you want to do. And I'm so, so grateful for him because so many parents, particularly of that era in the what was the early 80s uh, when I got into uni, you know, so many uh, parents were always talking about something to fall back on. Uh, and uh, no, he said, no, do what you want, follow your passion. So I'm very, very grateful to him for that. And here was the daughter saying, shouldn't I get something to fall back on? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> It was a it actually was the Bachelor of Music Education, so I would have been a teacher, uh, but I I only finished I got I got through I was about to start third year when um, I got into my first show, which was Pirates of Penzance, and so I ran away and joined the circus, and I never finished my degree. Oh, this time, maybe you can do it during Look, COVID. I have, well, <laughs> I did. I went back to uni last year. Um, and started, I was, I wanted to complete my degree and I was told that it was so old and so it was so long ago that it was completely irrelevant. <laughs> so I got no credit whatsoever. So I started doing a Bachelor of Arts um, last, like in 2020, um, online. Why? I don't know. It was just one of those mad oh. things. I think Are I've always had it? a... No, I'm well. I'm on a break at the moment. I took it. I took time off when I did the play in Sydney, um, and uh, I haven't, I haven't bitten the bullet and got back into it. But I will. I will. I'm still, you know. Oh yeah, stick with it. So just just to say you've done it. That sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I, you know what? That's all it is. It's my pride. I think. Yeah. I, have to, I have to do this. So, um, and it's good because I didn't do. I didn't study music. I was. I was studying English literature and sort of other stuff that I'm really interested in. So, and it, it's uh, any education is great education just for its own sake, you know. For sure, for sure. My kids all now, laugh at me, however, but still. <laughs> set an example. <laughs> yes. So, but from the age of 15, you were performing uh, at acoustic venues around Melbourne. Yeah. Like, like the yeah. Green Man. Uh, yes. Your parents were obviously supportive of that yeah. performing outlet for you. Very much and... so. They used to drive me to gigs, you know, before I had my licence and, well, you know, um, I used to uh, and I used to think I was Joni Mitchell or someone like that, you know, I played guitar and sang and did a lot of folk music, Celtic music. Um, and, yeah, it was, you know, I was, a, I was a hopeless, I tried waitressing for a while as a part-time job when I was at uni and I was just the worst waitress in the world and uh and uh, so, you know, playing music was an easy way to earn money and I loved it. I really loved it. I, I ached to be able to do it. A, a great hobby that's going to give you some pocket money. Exactly. Which then extended into busking. Yeah, yeah, in the Burke Street Mall. Were you making um, much cash, cash through busking? Yeah. Real good money. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was because I kind I was sort of, you know, it was I was a soprano in the middle of the Burke Street Mall. Everybody else sounded like Bob Dylan or Neil Young. And, you know, uh, and there was me sort of singing, I was singing kind of Elizabethan love songs and then a bit of Ella Fitzgerald and then a bit of Kate Bush. And I was kind of dancing around being like a twit, you know. Um, but I think it was just something really different. And, uh, yeah, 
I did pretty well. I did pretty well. There was one, I used to always sit at, set up next to the man that had dancing puppets. <laughs> it was like me and the puppet man. Yeah, you know, he was like in the next sort of the next sort of uh, twenty meters down the road. Yeah, and was I it loved much? It. Of, were you fighting for a good spot with the puppet man? Yeah, always. You had to get there really early. I used to always try to get the main Maya double doors. They were the best ones to get. <laughs> uh, have to watch out for the trams, I guess. Well, yeah, they used to go past and like you know ding. Yeah, yeah, and also don't step back too far. <laughs> <laughs> You should write a book on the, the hazards of busking. I know, I know. So you're doing that for a while, and then in September 83, you auditioned for Victoria State Opera's Pirates of Penzance. So how did you hear about the audition? It was advertised in the Age uh, newspaper. And, so it was an open uh, call? It was a cattle call, yeah, yeah, open call. And um, there was a group of us at the cafe in um, at uni and we saw it in the paper and we kind of, everyone was saying, oh, wouldn't that be cool, like, to actually, I'd never stood on a real stage, like a professional theatre stage. Um, and, you know, so we all kind of dared each other, a group of us dared each other to go along, um, if only just to go backstage at the Princess Theatre, the then unrenovated old Princess Theatre. And um, it was, you know, the most thrilling thing I'd ever experienced, like actually just being backstage with all these theatre folk you know, I kind of looked around and I thought, oh, this is my tribe. I found them. Uh, and I had to wait 
I mean, four hours to be seen. And I was given a number, a sticker with a number and uh, went along and sang a bit of the, you know, chorus sort of stuff. I didn't even have anything prepared because I had no agent, no nothing. And because I was there for four hours backstage waiting to go on, a very couple of very kind other people sort of taught me the, the snippets that we had to have learnt and sang, um, which I did. And then uh, they asked me to come back and uh, audition for Mabel, and which I did. And a few days later... That was it. My life completely changed. Where were you when you got the call? Or was it a call or a, a telegram? Or no. I got, certainly uh, would have been no, an sorry. email. No, no, no. <laughs> um, it was uh, so I did one audition. I went back for another um, the next day and I was there for quite some time uh, auditioning for Ken McKenzie Forbes and the wonderful late Noel Ferrier um, and... Uh, I remember uh, I, then they rang me at home and said, we'd like you to come in now. Uh, I had the weekend to wait and they said, come in on Monday uh, for another audition. I thought, gosh, it's getting close now. And um, when I got there, it wasn't an audition. It was just uh, all these people beaming at me as I walked in the door and they just, I remember they sat me down and said, you've got the role. Of Mabel and I remember saying to them, "Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> you don't mean the understudy?" And they said, "No, no, you're going to play the role." And um, it was absolutely was sort of surreal. I mean, I hadn't done anything. I mean, literally, you know, just school productions, uni productions, busking. That was it. I hadn't done. I hadn't done anything. So the voice was obviously that. in good nick. Were you having singing lessons at the time? Yeah. Yeah, right. I was because my major was voice, so I was studying voice. And I think, um, you know, there's something about I was 19 when I got the role and I think uh, there is a there's an uncomplicated confidence verging on arrogance that young people have where you just you don't complicate it with self-doubt. I hadn't been in the industry long enough to gather any self-doubt. I hadn't been criticised or, you know, picked on or, you know, all the stuff that happens, you know. Yep. None of that had happened. So I just sort of went in thinking, well, of course I can do it. I didn't even consider that maybe I couldn't. It was that wonderful thing of, of just being, uh, it, you're just so young and you don't complicate the situation with second-guessing or doubting yourself. That comes later. You join an illustrious company with, with David Atkins and Simon Gallagher and John English and the legendary June Bronhill. What, oh. what are you learning from those talents oh. working alongside them? So much, so much. I mean, I was in heaven because I was so hungry for it. And, uh, you know, I used to stay beyond my own rehearsal and just watch everybody. I'd just sit in the corner and watch everyone's rehearsal. Uh, I was in awe. I was in awe. I learned so much from June Bronhill. She really took me under her wing and bossed me around and told me what to do and what not to do. And, um, uh, you know, I learned so much from watching John English's extraordinary ability to communicate and hold the audience in the palm of his hand and and his comedic sort of free-forming skill. 
uh, and, and from Simon Gallagher's uh, glorious, free, natural musicality. I mean, his musicality and voice were phenomenal. And he was also a very astute businessman and used to sort of, you know, tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing with my money and all that sort of thing. Of course, I didn't listen, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And David Atkins was just, you know, just such a showman. So I had all these, they were all completely different, uh, you know, types of performers and all excelling in their particular style. Uh, And I just was like a sponge. I just remember just watching and learning and listening and, you know, Thinking, thinking back on it, I think it was, I, it was brave in a way because, you know, I did all my, I, I guess I did my training in front of 2,000 people every night. Yeah, that you was know, your school. It really was. It really was. Um, much as I did quite a bit at uni, but you don't get the same sort of um, stage experience as you do literally standing on stage and getting something wrong and not getting the laugh. You learn pretty quick okay, I didn't get the laugh and I'd say to John English or David or someone, you know, why didn't that work? And they'll tell me. And then I'd try it again the next night. And, you know, it was uh, it was a very fast-tracked learning period for me. It's a privilege, isn't it, to have those eight shows a week where you can, uh, well, the next night I will just modify that a little bit and Absolutely. we'll see what the reaction is, yeah. And that's what I love about theatre I love having eight show people often say don't you get sick of doing the same thing every night and I always say no because it's never right I never ever ever have walked off thinking that was it I've walked off feeling pleased but always with this aching kind of feeling of could have been better I could have done this I could have done that and that's I think that's the 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 discipline and the beauty of the discipline that we love in the theatre is being able to go back and try and get it better tomorrow night, sing that note better, get that laugh better, inhabit that scene in a better way. You know, that's that's the joy of eight shows a week. Tell me about Noel Ferrier because I, through these conversations and six degrees of separation, we can learn about uh, great people no longer with us. So what was your experience yeah. of him? Uh, I was terrified of him. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was, you know, as I said, I was 19. He he was a, a great gentleman of the theatre and television and show business. And, and he was, he tended to put on a persona, a blustery kind of, no, very kind of uh, persona, which I completely bought at my age. I just thought, oh, God. And he was the executive producer, I think. Uh, but, he was so he was very um, slightly gruff with me, but quite adorable as well. And I knew when he sometimes he would come backstage and say, he'd tell me off when I was doing something wrong. He'd say, "What are you doing? That's you know you you need to fix that up. Go and talk to someone about that scene. That's not working or whatever." But when I got something right, uh, he was adorable. A, a compliment from Noel was always a, a wonderful thing, and he was so damn funny. Yeah, mischievous. Yeah. I, wish, I wish I'd known him when I'd got older in the industry because I would have realised that I didn't need to be so scared. <laughs> but I was scared, just <laughs> terrified of him. So your first big role, you didn't have representation. Did you represent yourself there in negotiating that no, contract? No, no. The, the day that I got the role, 
um, Ken McKenzie Forbes from the VSO said to me, do you have an agent? And I said, what's an agent? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, right, you need to get an agent straight away. And uh, they rang Performers Management, uh, which was an agency down in Melbourne, and uh, they sort of took me on over the phone. And then I went straight from being offered the role to performance management who then, because they said, get performance management to negotiate for you and look after you. And so, and they, and basically uh, my manager, Mark Gogol, uh, sometime afterwards, shortly afterwards, uh, ended up working there and then went out onto his, onto his into his own uh, management company and I followed him. So in a way, I've sort of almost been with the same company my entire career and with mark of course it's been a, a marriage made in heaven oh uh, he look he uh I, I trust him implicitly uh he's been a performer himself we actually did hms pinafore together um with geraldine um and uh became great we were friends before he was my agent um and i trust him artistically you know he's like well he's the he's the godfather of my first child like I mean he's he's family essentially yeah he's adorable well Mabel in Pirates Penzance it doesn't take long before you're going from show to show to show it's quite an exhaustive CV with over I think about 30 shows that you've you've done up to date in this um, extensive career Mm -hmm. do you have a favorite composer or writing team whose work you've just simply loved doing there's so um, many, I'm sure. Oh, gosh. Um, I love Stephen Sondheim like everybody in music theatre does because if you truly uh, want to have a marriage of of um, the singing and the acting skills, then he, nobody writes so perfectly um, to be able to act through a song, I think, like Sondheim. Love Rogers and Hammerstein. Honestly, no, I, I couldn't. I couldn't say. I couldn't it's like say. Choosing a favourite child, isn't it? It really is. It really is. <laughs> and every show, every show has been uh, a different type of gift, and that's just the way I choose to see it. But you know, uh, doing Les Misérables, for example, um, 
Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Bubli, you know, they're writing uh, and Trevor Nunn's, married with Trevor Nunn's direction, really did change music theatre in a way. It became, I think with that show, with Trevor's influence, it became a lot more naturalistic and, and slightly more filmic rather than the presentational, uh, traditional, old-fashioned kind of uh, music theatre style. Um, so I think they, the, 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 the Frenchmen also brought the popular song back to the musical, you know. Yeah, they really the 50s, did. In the 50s, often yeah. a song from a musical would be in the, the charts, whereas um, Correct. Yeah. Know, everybody was singing those songs. Absolutely. Everybody's still singing those songs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that was extraordinary. Phantom was just amazing. It was like being in the, you know, eye of a storm and to... to be able to play a true soprano role that really is a protagonist in the story. That often doesn't happen. Often the soprano is the uh, benign love interest a lot of the time. Not always, but um, actually probably, and also if I had to, I mean, no, I can't pick one, but, you know, Bernstein, I mean, West Side Story is about as good as it gets, you know, in terms of construction of a musical. Indeed. Well, you got to sing Lerner and Lowe in, in Camelot as Guinevere opposite oh, yes, Richard Harris. I think, was that your second show after Pirates? Yeah, yeah. I think, it, was I it? mean, there was four weeks in between and then bang, I was suddenly, oh, well, I got flown to America to do the final auditions um, and, uh, yeah, that was, whoa, that was just a... a whirlwind kind of uh, time, gosh. What was Mr Harris like to work with? Because he, did he direct it as well? Director, producer, star. <laughs> uh, so he had a big investment. Oh, yeah. Um, what was he like? Look, he taught me so much, not only about acting but about myself um, because it's no... It is no secret that he is he was infamously difficult to work with. Um, and uh, and huge he, alcohol issues as well. I guess which... today he would oh massive, <laughs> massive. <laughs> and he was drying out, I think, at the time when he was working with me. So he wasn't terribly happy. Uh, I was I was a kid. Um, he was 60-something and I was 20, 20 turning 21. Um, and, you know, today you would, I, was I was bullied. I was harassed and I was bullied uh, and treated in an appalling way. Um, he would scream at me, um, he bailed me up backstage against a wall and call me, you know, every name under the sun because I jumped a line or hadn't done something properly or uh, whatever. Um, and then he was like Jekyll and Hyde. Other times, you know, I remember fabulous, like having a rehearsal at the hour call with him and he would give me fabulous uh, tips and secrets and say, you know, darling, this is something that Larry, you know, Olivier told me, hold on to this thought and do this and do that. Like, I mean, he and he... He uh, used to sit up in the, 
in the dress circle and I would stand on stage and we'd do the most intimate scene that we had, a very quiet scene that we had in the show and he would make me project that intimacy right up to him up in the top stores, you know, um, stop, top dress circle, things like that that were invaluably uh, precious and wonderful and also I think in pushing me and, and being unpleasant and difficult towards me, he taught me my own strength because finally I, after a few months of just horrendous treatment, I stood up to him and told him I was quitting and told him what I thought of him and uh, sort of stormed out, <laughs> stormed out and said, I'm leaving. And he chased me down the corridor and sort of, you know, pleaded for me to stay and was so thrilled. He said, I never, I never taught you how to in your dialing, you know, because I, I stood up to him, um, which is kind of pathetic because, I mean, I was a third of his age and I, you don't need to do that to young people to get the best out of them or to teach them a lesson or, you know. Uh, but after that, nobody, nobody has intimidated me off on or off stage since then because yeah he taught me he taught me to to stand up for myself well thank god characters like that aren't around uh anymore and what a horrible way to learn determination yeah and it doesn't happen anymore you're not allowed to do that it's our culture thank god is changing so that that just is not acceptable uh and not tolerated, and there are avenues to be able to deal with it, but only recently, actually, mm, only relatively yeah. recently. But as a young woman uh, in that industry, you you know, back then you really were, you were thrown to the wolves, you know, yeah. literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you were fighting tremendous ego too because he'd played King Arthur in the film version of, of Camelot, which... Oh, yeah. I believe that yeah. that he really wanted that role. He went after it, but they wouldn't give it to him because yeah. of his limited singing ability. And um, he paid someone to walk up and down the Strand yes. saying, Harris is better than Burton, only Harris for Camelot. <laughs> so you're dealing with that sort of ego. Production uh, that I went into was originally touring in the United States with Richard Burton and in fact, Richard Burton died soon after, so he had to leave because of ill health and passed away during the production and, and Harris took over. And uh, yeah, he always, it was always a bit of a sore point. If you ever wanted to needle him, you just had to mention Richard Burton. <laughs> he kind of, I think he loved him, but I think he was very jealous of him yes, or competitive with him. Professional rivalry. Yeah. I could listen to stories from Marina's brilliant career all day. What a treat for us all to have that window into the craft and career of one of this country's finest talents. Tune in for part two of the conversation in the next episode of The Stages podcast when Marina elaborates on more of the theatrical triumph and challenge that she has navigated throughout her career. It is engaging, entertaining and required listening for any fan of the theatre, I promise. Thanks to the team at Mark Gogol Enterprises for coordinating the chat today and a reminder that all of the music featured can be found from all of your online music stores. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au.
I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.